1: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Tuesday, the 30th of August in the great year of 2022. As always, I want to begin by saying thank y'all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me for a little while. But as you've already figured out, it is Tuesday, so that means it's a hashtag Terry Tuesday on The Compliance Guy. And I'm joined by my great friend, Terry Fletcher, out in California how are you my friend i am good good morning good morning so today i was going to talk about all the nonsense that i dealt with out on the farm this weekend with rats and tractors not starting and shooting guns and missing things and but i figured nobody wants to hear that they want to hear what you have to talk about today which actually i do as well and i told terry before we got started i actually. Was practicing my Latin a little bit today for the direction that we're gonna go. And no, I'm I'm not talking about my Latin <laughs> dancing. This is not salsa. Uh <laughs> um, but I we are going to talk about some things. So, Terry, I know you got a question from one of your subscribers, and yeah. it was an interesting question. And it's it's a question that I get asked frequently by folks, and it's basically I'm gonna paraphrase it and I'm gonna let you kind of take it from there. It's basically, I work for a doctor or a group of doctors or a health system or a group, whatever it is, and they don't listen to me. I tell them, this is what the guidelines are. I tell them, this is what has to be documented. This is how it has to be coded. These are the diagnosis codes. These are the modifiers that are applicable. Or these services in general just can't be billed because they're excluded or non-covered, whatever the reason may be. But at the end of the day, the message is what do I do when I have providers who just won't listen to me? So let me pause, let me turn it over to you and let's see where this thing goes.
2: Yeah. So this is something that, I mean, you could almost say, you know, one size fits all inject here because we get this question a lot and What Sean and I are talking about is basically you as coders, you as healthcare professionals, you're hired to do a job and you have taken the courses, you've gotten your certifications or you're in the process of getting them. You listen to these podcasts that we try to bring you current information. You do your due diligence and, you know, you get these um, local coverage determinations, you get the national coverage determinations, you get the insurance policy information, you bring it to your provider and say, this is why you can't or can't do something. you are like, eh, I don't care. Bill it anyway. And so now we have a staff coming to us and saying, what do I do? Am I going to get in trouble for this if we're audited or does it just fall back on the physician? So I'm going to start with both. Okay. So here's the thing you've worked really hard for your credential and we all have uh, a mission that we have to abide by. We have a, um, ethical standards, I guess, that we have to to abide by. And if we're told not to do something, we're not supposed to do it. I know that sounds silly, but if we're told that we can't do it, if something's bundled or included, or your contract provision that you sign says that you can't bill it this way, or Medicare says, hey, we feel that this is inclusive of this code, or You have an MUE of of three today, which is a medically unlikely edit, meaning how many you can do in in a given date. And you're trying to bill for seven. If you do that, not only are you inflating your AR, let's just start there, and you can't collect it anyway. But the second thing is that knowingly posting something, knowingly submitting something, irrespective of what your provider, and when we say provider, we're meaning MDs, DOs, NPPs, whoever is telling you to do that you will get in trouble, not just as a coder, biller, somebody who's posting, but also it does fall on the provider as well. So I try to explain this to providers that and physicians and et cetera that in hospitals even, we're there to not only make you money, but to, you know, um, extrapolate what you do in surfaces based on what we can do a five digit code CPT, or if it's ICD-10, PCS, you know, we're, we're trying to take what you do narratively, put it into a code system and get you paid without falling over a cliff, without making sure that, you know, anything is inappropriate. And we're there for your protection. Okay. Somebody has to protect you because sometimes the tunnel vision that providers can get is just, well, I got paid or how do I get paid? I mean, I was just doing an audit with a physician and we had a one-on-one because, he failed his level five audit by ninety two percent, and I said, you know, here's here's what you need to understand about this. He goes, well, tell me what I need to document to get to a level five. No, 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 no. I'm saying, well, give me an example of a patient that you think is level five, and let's walk through it. So we walk through it, and I'm like, well, you're still moderate. I'm not seeing it now. And then I start asking questions, you know, did that patient have this risk factor? Was it a, a severe exacerbation and things like that? And he's like, well, it was actually not severe, but I'm like, okay, so this is where we're still at moderate and you can't just make things up to make it what you want it so you can get paid. So in saying that, I just want, you know, when we talk about injectables, when we talk about DME, um, when we talk about, shoot, extra branches trying to get angioplastied These things, there's a reason that there are rules in place on payment. There's a reason there's rules in place on how you code, how you bill, how you report it. And as a staff member, I know this is hard, but you're actually in a pretty good position right now with staff shortages. If you feel that there are um, suspect things going on in your practice, get out because there is somebody else waiting to hire you. So but you have to bring it first to your administrator or your, your manager and go the, go up the ladder. Don't just say, I'm out of here because I think you're committing fraud. I don't like it when, when staff do that because like, more than likely, it's not fraud. It's more just not understanding how things work. There, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that you you don't want to jump to that conclusion right away because now you, you know you're labeling yourself as somebody who does that. But you definitely want to bring it to somebody's attention, keep it in writing that you did that and have them sign off on, the, on your conversation. And Sean, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah,
1: so, I, you know, Terry, I agree with you. Not everything rises to the level of criminality, but remember, in healthcare, we have two sides. We have the civil side and we have the criminal side. So while some things may not rise to the level of criminality under a healthcare fraud statute, as an example, we still have the civil side. And under the civil side, you have what's referred to as the False Claims Act penalties. Now, remember, you know, in healthcare, we have what's defined as fraud, waste, or abuse. And I agree, you know, that not everything needs to automatically go to the F word. Now, if you were out on the farm with me this weekend and you saw that wharf rat that I had to deal with, you know, things would have risen to that level. But under healthcare, when we talk about the False Claims Act, and, and I think this is extremely important for folks to keep in mind, this falls under 31 U.S.C. 3729, subsections 3729 through 3733. And what, it, what this section does is it provides that anyone who violates the law, okay, and notice the terms. Anyone who violates the law is liable to the United States government for a civil penalty of not less than 5,000 and not more than 10,000 plus what they refer to as treble damages, three times the amount of the damages. But when you think about the False Claims Act, you got to keep in mind that now In May of 2022. The Civil False Claims Act penalties. Which are tied directly to inflation. And a lot of folks don't realize this. When you're talking about the Civil False Claims Act. Okay. It is tied to the inflation rate. Well, our country has seen hyperinflation for several months now. Right. In the month of. July, it was 8.5%. That was the inflation rate. In the month of June, it was 8.9%. So what has happened is, in May of 2022, the government has increased the civil false claims penalties, ranging now from $12,537 to 25 thousand and seventy six dollars per
2: occurrence i actually didn't okay? know it went with the inflation rate either that's actually news to me i didn't know that yeah yeah so the 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 adjustment comes
1: just six months after the last adjustment of the civil false claims act which was in december of 2021 now the thing to keep in mind, and, and I just want to give everybody just a two-second historical understanding so you can see how this, this thing has grown. In 1986, when the law first really was put into place in healthcare, now remember, this is the Lincoln Law, so it dates all the way back to what? The Civil War. So the penalties were 5000 to 10000 per violation. And then in 1999, Congress increased it from 5500 to $11,000. And then in 2015, the inflation adjustment law was amended again. So this is tied to what's referred to as the inflation adjustment law. And federal agencies are responsible for updating their penalties annually. So now, both the date of the violation and assessment matter for penalties, uh, um, are are increasing. So again, as I said, since May 9th of twenty twenty two, the penalties now range from twelve thousand five thirty seven to twenty five thousand seventy six dollars for each claim. Each claim. Now, Terry, I want to go back to something that you said, and I I think this is such. a a salient point for the listeners. you said you know don't just automatically quit your job and say i'm quitting because you're committing fraud couldn't agree with you more i think that's just bad form um you know talk to your supervisor talk to the managing physician talk to the president of the organization whoever it is If you're in a larger organization, you have an anonymous tips line, use that. Or go to the Office of Compliance and talk to the compliance officer. But you raised a great point, which was put in writing the the issues or concerns that you have and present those to the individual. Now, I would love to see the person who you're bringing this to their attention of I would love for you to be able to get a signature from them, acknowledging that you presented this to them and that they are aware of what you consider to be potential violations. Odds are nobody's going to want to sign for legal ramification reasons, for a whole myriad of reasons. But having that chain of emails having that, um, um, you know, string of, uh, communication, you know, written communications. Right. Thank you, Terry. Yep. <laughs> um, I think those are, I think those are so important. And then, you know, the reason why I, I bring that up is because we deal with what, you know, what are referred to as key Tam lawsuits. Right. And Terry, I know you're, you're, widely familiar with key tam lawsuits but for some of our folks that are listening and 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 i'm going to see if you actually know this one um a key tam lawsuit for our folks who are listening that are not 100 familiar with it um this is a type of lawsuit that is a civil action that's brought in federal court where individuals known as a relayer File suit on behalf of the United States government against another party alleged to have committed fraud against the government, and if a kitam relayer prevails in that lawsuit, they are typically entitled to a portion of the co- recovery. Now, here's here's the question, that, and Terry. I, I'm just I'm just asking because, well, I'm just asking. Do you do you know what? Kitam actually means
2: it's been a while, so no, okay. it's been a while.
1: So, it- so, so this is kind of a fun trivia thing, and my, this is why my wife says your head is full of such useless information. So, what Kitam means is in the name of the king, okay, and it is actually a shortened term for a Latin phrase. He tam pro domino quam pro se ipso in hoc parte sequetur Try saying that 3 times. And have you fallen phrase, off the rails already? <laughs> the, the phrase roughly means he who sues in this matter does so on behalf of the king as well as himself. So that's where
2: the phrase he tam comes from. Yeah, the, the one thing that I, just to kind of back it up a little bit before you get to that point in in yeah. response to kind of the question that, that I got, and I'm sure you get all the time, as far as who's responsible, is this going to hurt me? Should I, you know, I don't want to lose my job. I just want to do what my doctor says. The one thing that, point. yeah, that you have to keep in mind too, and this is to the listeners, you know, remember, Anything you bring to a physician, to your administrator, to anybody, do not just bring a complaint without backup, meaning that you are saying, and it's not really shouldn't be classified as a complaint. It's really saying, you know what, this is a practice. This is something that I've noticed in our workflows that's happening. And this is what I found from a published guidance that's saying we can or cannot do it so i would like to just bring this to your attention and see if we can fix it and let the physician know that we have to do it this way because one of the you know the successful staff and healthcare professionals that your physicians actually want to talk to are are people that not only bring them a not a problem but but if there's an issue uh, a solution or basically a reference where they can say, well, tell me where you're seeing that. And that way you can bring them an authoritative reference and guidance, you know, a source saying that this is why we can or can't do this. And I'm here to protect you. And I just want to make sure that we're doing things correctly. And when you have that kind of guidance, you know, you're going to have an administrator that is going to want to kind of fall in line with what you're saying. If you don't have that, you're going to have an administrator saying there's somebody that, you know, just wants to complain about something, but not fix, not help fix the problem. Um, One of the other questions I got recently was on um, medical nutritional therapy. Well, medical nutritional therapy. Oh, Oh my gosh. So I have so many practices that try to bill this as a, under a physician, under an RN, under a medical assistant, and they try to bill it as a 99211. Do not do that. There's actually MNT codes for that. And it's so specific for Medicare. It has to be done by a registered dietitian for diabetes, chronic kidney disease, renal disease. I mean, you have to, you know, there's there's a specific, um, or if you had a kidney transplant, there's four specific diagnosis and that's it. And they're like, well, you know, my doctors, we're a bariatric practice and we just feel like it's really good business to have that. And I said, it is, but that doesn't mean you could charge for it. It's, it's part, it's integrated into your ENM service that your physician did. It's not extra, you know, it's not an extra service. Right. Um, I have a, an oncologist that he says, you know, we really need to uh, see if we can get paid um, for the um, MNT or for group services to talk to patients about, you know, not do, dealing with herbal, um, Herbals, um, because on chemo it's, it's very contraindicated. Um, and I said, okay. I right. go, Is, do, you, do you? Are you asking if that's part of your risk factor on the morbidity and um, complexity on the medical decision making? He goes, no. I want something extra. I'm like, there's nothing extra. I'm like, that's not extra. That's part of your conversation in the medical decision making. And then I get the, you know, the physicians' offices that are saying, well, we're a renal clinic, and we need to. We have a registered dietitian. And we want to have these services integrated. Great. Now I have somebody that understands what these services are, but sometimes I feel like practices just kind of open a box and they say, let's do this. And then I don't know, it's, it's very much like a catch and release. And then you have to come back and say, Oh, by the way, we have to go back and refund. We have to now figure out why we did this. And you're just as responsible as a coding professional as somebody who is actually telling you to do it. And so it's so important, you know, for, um, Sean, uh, the acronym FWA, a lot of you don't know what that is. And Sean, you know, spelled it out, fraud, waste, and abuse. Every single time the OIG says something or put something on LinkedIn or put something out, I get an email from them daily on what they're finding. They, they have this phrase about, you cannot have fraud, waste, and abuse against the federal government. And that's what that is.
1: So, you know, this is this is where it becomes so important for healthcare organizations to have a corporate compliance program. Not just to be able to demonstrate a good faith effort that they are complying with the government because remember, under the 2020 DOJ Criminal Division guidance for evaluation of corporate compliance programs, it says Even if errors are detected, they don't necessarily rise to the level of fraud, which is tied directly to why you want a corporate compliance program. But to Terry's point, you need to have policies and procedures in place as an organization so that when you have employees that have been with you for a while or you have new employees that are onboarding, We're able to share with them the reasons why we do what we do. Because remember, somebody may have come from another organization, and in that organization, they heard that doing X, Y, and Z was fraudulent, or it was abusive, or it was wasteful. But in your organization, where you have you know compliance as the governing authority over the organization, right? You may have had. Conversations with general counsel or external counsel to get a written legal opinion, because the majority of things that we do in healthcare are gray. There's a lot of gray areas in what we do, and we have to use discretion. So let's let's talk about the fact that, talk about that yeah yeah let's talk about the fact that if. If you've received a legal opinion, those are going to be containing statutes, laws, acts, regulations, whatever it may be that govern not only at the federal level, but at the state level. Some of your practices, based on the size of your organization, may have reached out for an advisory opinion from the office of the inspector general to say, we believe what we're doing is completely compliant, but there's a lack of reg- you know, regulation or there's a lack of published guidance available to us. And the advisory opinion, which would be specific to your organization, would say something to the effect of the OIG, if, if they were to conduct an investigation, most likely would not pursue any potential penalties or fines or escalation to the Department of Justice. However, if something changes, you may have to seek an additional opinion. So the only other thing that you brought up, Terry, before I let you kind of wrap this thing up and and close it out, the only other thing that you brought up was the, the requirement to make overpayments, right? and i just want to make sure that when we talk about this we're talking about the affordable care act okay it's under aca and under aca as we've talked about many times this has to do with reporting and returning overpayments and what it actually says and i'm going to quote specific from aca any person who receives a medicare or medicaid overpayment must report and return the overpayment to the appropriate government agency Within 60 days after the overpayment is identified, and also must provide in writing the reason for the overpayment. Now, keep in mind, while the statute does not explicitly require an internal investigation, in most instances, some type of investigation will be required to identify the overpayment and the reason for it. Remember, any overpayment retained by a person after the deadline is an obligation under the federal false claims act in addition the failure to repay any overpayment will also subject a provider to the civil monetary penalties law and potential exclusion from participation in government health care programs so because you brought up holding on to the overpayments i wanted to make sure that we actually addressed aca for our listeners. So Terry, why don't you go ahead and wrap this session up for us um, about the questions
2: that we're getting when there's no published guidance? Yeah, so this is something, and whenever I get something interesting, I love to send it to Sean. Going, okay, so look what I'm getting this week, and he's like, "No, I got a better one." So we're always trying to one up each other on things that we get There are clients. Which it's just some—we're nerds. I'm sorry, we're compliance nerds. He's the compliance guy. Apparently, I'm the compliance gal. It, we just want things to to, to work there correctly. But when there's the question comes up all the time, and they say, "You know, what if there's no published guidance? What if there's no published rule? What's your advice?" One of the things that just came up recently, and I was actually saving it for a different podcast we were doing, but I figured it's a good, good time to bring it up. Do you know of any regulations that govern expiration of physician orders for diagnostic testing? For example, is it a year after the order written or no longer valid? I must've researched my butt off trying to figure out what is the rule. And it was all over the place, Sean. I had some States that said 30 days. I had other States that said six months. I had one that said 90 days. I had one that said seven days. Um, I didn't find anything that said a year, but what I did find in a Medicare transmittal ABO2-030 and see, here we are again, chapter verse it talked about labs and it talked about, um, making sure that they are still medically necessary. See, it always goes back to that social security regulation of medical necessity. But we have to, at some point, realize that common sense has to take, <laughs> take control when you really don't have a published specific source. I mean, I appreciated the question from the client, but the one thing that that kind of stuck with me was, over a period of a year, especially patients who've had COVID because of the long haul COVID and how it's really kind of attacked people's comorbidities, and you have an order, let's say for, um, let's say an echo for a patient, and is that, should that really be okay to save it for a year? No, you need a reassessment on that patient to see maybe, you know, they've deteriorated, maybe there's something else going on, maybe they, you know, they've changed their condition. So to me, a year is too long. And so what I did is I found something on labs. I also found the, there is rules on um, pre-ops. Those are good. Most hospitals for 30 days, you know, and so I went back and said, unfortunately, there is no guidance on this, but here is a rule that you can kind of mirror for that. And I would default to best practices, not to extend it past 30 days, because now you're dealing with a medical necessity issue versus a rule on the standing order. And that seemed to suffice the client, but I could see her going back to her provider and him saying, well, if there's no rule, it's good for 10 years. So, you know, th- this is where yeah. I get a little nuts when we, when everybody always wants a specific rule to everything. And sometimes you just go, okay, well, common sense and best practices would be, you know what? 30 days is good.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you. And, you know, because you keep bringing up these points, Terry, you're, you're making my brain go into hyper drive. You know, y- you brought up, medical necessity and you brought up reasonable and necessary so what what is a what is a practice to do in the event there is no published guidance right what what do you do in the event if there's no national coverage determination or if there's no local coverage determination what do you do
2: i mean you well, here's the here's the thing, real the quick. Before,
1: practices. Well, go before ahead.
2: you go into that, here's something. Remember on yeah. the last compliance roundtable we did, Stephanie brought up something, and then I had brought up something, and I think Christine did too. Remember the last things we were talking about, where there was some published guidance, but it wasn't specific. And even Stephanie Allard said, but they said, well, this was the spirit of the law. And I had one. Remember on that yeah. one telehealth, they said, well, this was the spirit of the gist. And we're like, okay, right. but. <laughs> so, I mean, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's like not even. If no, 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 no. I'm one, glad you brought that up. Well, judges are looking for people to really, you know, take the reins and and do what's right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really
1: interesting. And, and you know, I want to I want to save the, the part about judges for maybe next week or another day, because there is a ton of inconsistency in the rulings that are being handed down in administrative law judge cases from the Office of Medicare Hearing and Appeals. Um, I, I I do probably 50-plus ALJ hearings a year. I mean, between Amanda Wesh and, you know, Lyle's Parker and, you know, some of these other firms that do a ton of administrative hearings. But w- what I was going to say is, in the absence of an NCD or an LCD, You have to refer to Chapter 3 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual. Specifically, it's 3.6.2.2, and it is titled Reasonable and Necessary Criteria. And the section itself applies to the Medicare Administrative Contractors, to the Comprehensive Error Rate Testing. It It applies to Recovery Audit Contractors to unify Program Integrity Contractors, and basically what it says is that in the absence of an NCD, Medicare contractors are responsible for determining whether services are reasonable and necessary. If no local coverage determination exists for a particular item or service, the Max CERTs, Recovery Auditors, and UPICs shall consider an item or service to be reasonable and necessary if. The item or service meets the following criteria. One, it has to be safe and effective. Two, it cannot be experimental or investigational. And three, it is appropriate, including the duration and frequency in terms of whether the service or item, and it goes through three different subparts, right? Furnished in accordance with accepted standards of medical practice, furnished in a setting appropriate to the beneficiary, and ordered and furnished by qualified personnel. So, Even though you may look at something and say, well, there's no published guidance on it, that doesn't preclude you from submitting a claim to get reimbursed on it. It just means that you're going to have to have a clinical summary and rationale created to be able to submit to any of those entities that I mentioned just a moment ago for them to make a determination as to whether or not the service is reasonable and necessary. Right. All right, Terry, any any final thoughts that you have on this episode?
2: Um I think just to our listeners out there if you're a coder biller professional, just make sure that you realize and always keep in mind two things. First of all, you're just as responsible as the provider if you're inputting these charges to get submitted to a payer. And second, That's right. When it comes to um, integrity and making sure that everything is, you know, crossing your T's, dotting your I's, if you're going to bring a problem to your management team, to your provider, if you're a smaller practice, make sure you you have a reference and an authoritative site that you're showing them why there is an issue and also if you can, and then also how you'd fix it say, you know what? Okay. Ponder that for a minute. If you're saying they can't do that, you want to always give a physician an option saying, but we could do this. That's what I do in my audits where first thing I do is I tell a physician the good news and then I spring the bad news. (laughs) So it's like, you know what? Your penmanship was awesome, but you failed your audit completely. So we're trying, I never say that by the way, what penmanship (laughs) is awesome, but I'm just saying, you want to always have a, You know, a problem needs to have some kind of solution, even if it's something where you're saying we should probably look into doing it this way, something that shows them you are there for them. You've got their back and it's not just you're there to complain. And that's, that's how I'd end up my session for it.
1: Yeah. I usually start off by saying your point and click is fantastic. (laughs) Nothing.
2: That's awesome. I I was
1: going to say nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Your ability to point point. Yeah, your ability to point and click in your EMR is nothing short of spectacular. However, it's all irrelevant and has nothing to do with the service that you just built. Yeah, and it also mirrors the prior 10
2: encounters that you had with the patient. I already read this a month ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Exactly. exactly. All right. So on behalf
1: of my great friend, Terry Fletcher, Uh, and myself, Sean Weiss. Thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while on today's Hashtag Terry Tuesday episode on The Compliance Guy. I'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday, with a daily dose. But until then, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
2: You've been listening to The Compliance
0: Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of Compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.